Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Oh! Wonderful shot by Lennox Lewis! A right hand by Holyfield! By Buster Douglas! Look at this! He's knocked by Tyson down for the first time in his career! But unfortunately, it'll never happen. Crunch! Punches! And punches! And it is over! I think it's gonna be over! say there seems an element of genuine hate between these two Ambrose. For sure. I don't hate the man. Just imagine if you bought a ticket. Stop it, Greg. You can stop it any time. Castillo's in trouble. Weak steps in and the fight is over. Oh! Welcome back to the Legendary Knights podcast, episode number three of season three. And it's the tale of Mike Tyson versus Frank Bruno. A tale and a story of two heavyweight boxers that went toe-to-toe on two separate occasions over the course of an eight-year period. And it's a tale of USA versus the UK. I'm really looking forward to talking about Tyson versus Bruno, the stories behind it, their careers together, how it intertwined, how they got on the road and ended up meeting each other. And obviously the stories that happened outside of the ring for both men. Tyson, more so than Bruno, had these trials and tribulations, which are well documented and we will cover them off during the course of this episode. But we're delighted to bring you another fantastic tale of two brilliant fighters. Yeah, two absolutely phenomenal fighters for me. I mean, Bruno, I was a huge Frank Bruno fan as a child. My family loved him. Everybody loved him, really. And Mike Tyson was that fearsome character who that we I grew to like. I didn't like him at first, but as I've grown older, I realised how much of an animal he was. But yeah, look, this is a great tale of good versus evil, if you like. That's pretty much what we're talking about here. But there are loads of stories in and out the ring that obviously we will document and, and the build up to their first fight is is huge there's so much that goes on so and so many cancellations but we're going to all that and we think you're going to really enjoy it because there's loads of details in here and yeah it's it's, it's a it's great to to look back on for those that are sort of aged from up to 30 40 years of age and, and 50 
anyone younger, this is not fresh in your memory. So we're trying to paint a picture of what the time was like as well. So enjoy. Well, we're going to start with Frank Bruno and going into his career. Bearing in mind, we don't always start from the beginning of these fighters' career. So Frank, at this point in the story, he'd won 21 professional fights all inside the distance. Now, the biographer, Kevin Mitchell, he described Bruno's impressive rise under the tutelage of Terry Lawless. And he wrote, Frank's strengths were his power. He had a massive right hand that could knock anybody out. But some of his opponents were very ordinary. The criticism I had at the time, and I haven't changed my mind, is that some of those fights never taught him anything at all. Slower, fatter and smaller used to be the motto. Bruno was spoon-fed a succession of opponents which were carefully selected by his promoter Mickey Duff in partnership with his veteran trainer Terry Lawless, which did Bruno no favours. Kevin Mitchell, who was correct in his assessment, then recalled, there was a wake-up call against Jumbo Floyd Cummings, a tough ex-con with a big right hand. That wake-up call came on October the 11th, 1983, at the Royal Albert Hall. Bruno was badly shaken by a Cummings right hand just as the bell sounded to end the first round. His legs had gone, and it's a surprise he was still standing. He was so stunned that Terry Lawless had to help him back to his corner. It was a credit to his heart and determination that he managed to recover and not get knocked out in the second round, but he found his legs again and slowly clawed his way back into an all-action fight. The end finally came when the American went down in the seventh, forcing referee Mike Jacobs to stop the contest after Cummings collapsed after returning to his feet. The warning signs were on the wall before the James Bonecrusher Smith fight at Wembley Arena on May the 13th, 1984. The prize for the winner was supposed to be a fight against Larry Holmes. Wow, big rewards there. And Bruno had won every round against Bonecrusher Smith for the first nine rounds in a way, fighting entirely behind the jab and was heading towards a, a bit of a disappointing points win. However, Smith was clever and he allowed Bruno to punch himself out and then he seized his opportunity, unloaded a barrage of punches on a tired Bruno until he stopped him in the 10th and final round. A disappointed Bruno admitted to commentator Harry Carpenter, I got beat. I know there are a lot of people who might be laughing out there saying, I'm glad he got his backside kicked, but you know I'll be back, Harry. Barry McGuigan summed up Bruno's imperfections in this fight and his imperfections as a fighter perfectly when he said when he was hit and hurt, he was terribly vulnerable. His hands would come down, his chin would go up, whereas most fighters would hold on and grab and pull they would hold on for their dear life until their heads would clear or run away. But he didn't have the ability to do that. It was just something he didn't learn. And those 21 knockouts were against pretty much tomato cans. And four easy wins got Frank Bruno back on track and in line for a shot at the European heavyweight champion, Anders Uckland, on October the 1st, 1985 at Wembley Arena once again. And a big Swede actually towered over Bruno. He was standing at six foot six inches, and he was nothing more than a big man on thin legs for such a giant as described by Harry Carpenter. Bruno demonstrated his impressive left jab and looked sharp in the first couple of rounds until he was caught again. This time, however, wasn't as badly hurt as he was against Bonecrusher Smith and Jumbo, and it certainly stiffened him up. Finally, in the fourth round, Bruno landed three big right hands, sending the Swede down and unable to beat the count. So Mike Tyson now enters the story because eight days later across the pond at the Trump Plaza Hotel and Casino in Atlantic City, 
Mike Tyson was into his ninth professional fight against Donny Long, the man who Al Bernstein said would be a tough opponent. But just before Tyson entered the ring to add another victim to his fast rise to the top, he was rubbing shoulders with the stars. He was a massive wrestling fan, and while at a show, he met his favourite wrestler, Bruno Sammartino, and was totally starstruck and said, Someone introduced us, and he had no idea who I was, but I started recounting to him all the great matches I had seen him participate in against people like Killer Kowalski or Nikolai Volkov and George the Animal Steel. In my sick megalomaniac mind, I was thinking, this is a sign of my greatness. My hero is here with me. I'm going to be great like him and win the championship. Now, Custy Amato wasn't happy with his young protégé for spending too much time in Manhattan mingling with the stars. When he visited the city, he'd stay with Steve Lott, Jimmy Jacobs' right-hand man. Tyson called Steve a model junkie who would take him to nightclubs and other places where beautiful girls would hang out. Still young and easily led, Tyson recalled, at the time, I was dedicated to winning that belt, so I wasn't really fooling around with the girls yet. I tried to be a nice guy then, not going too far. My weakness was food. Steve was a great cook, and when I went out at night clubbing, I'd come back and have Steve heat up some Chinese leftovers for a late night snack. I'd go back to Catskill after a few days and Cuss would be mad. Look at your ass. Your ass is getting fatter. And he'd shake his head. Well, uh, fat ass or not, Mike Tyson wasted no time dispatching Donny Long. The beginning of the end came when Tyson landed a big lunging left hook, which sent Long into the ropes and down onto his backside 37 seconds into the fight. Long hit the deck a second time before a short left buckled his knees and sent him down for a third and final time that actually forced the referee to wave the fight off. Now, following the knockout, Tyson famously blew a kiss to the camera and uh, Al Bernstein said after the win, make no mistake about it, that was a good performance. Not just because of the way he did, but because he did it against a fighter who, even though he's not what he was two years ago, still should be more than a journeyman heavyweight. Tyson was quick to point out that Bernstein's pre-fight assessment of his opponent, and he said, like I told you, Bernstein, earlier today, if I knock him out in one or two rounds, would you can still consider him a tough opponent? And Bernstein responded, I thought he was supposed to be, but I guess he wasn't. And then Tyson replied, okay, so now he wasn't, and laughed. So I think he's trying to get to the point that no matter what he was doing to these guys, people would say how tough and durable they were. He was still just flattening them and not really getting much credit for it by those professionals within the, within boxing. And so a fight was later scheduled for Tyson a week later at Madison Square Garden, but his opponent pulled out with no backup replacement. It was a night off for Mike Tyson. So we're going to highlight Tyson's early promiscuity. We'll share a story of what happened after not fighting that fight. And while in New York, he was eager to sow his wild oats. So the 19-year-old Mike Tyson headed off to a brothel. After picking out a Cuban girl, we'll let Mike explain what happened next. And he said in his own words, here I was ready to focus my aggression and beat up my opponent in the ring, but the fight is cancelled and I go and get laid. I was actually extremely excited. Well, Tyson continued and he said during our session, her back went out and she said, Hey, we have to stop. I pulled something in my back. I hadn't finished yet, so I asked her for my money back. She changed the subject 
and asked me for my Edwin Rosario t-shirt that I was wearing. She was too hurt to continue, so she said, let's talk. And we talked for a while, and then I left with my (laughs) (laughs) t-shirt. A great Mike Tyson story that maybe you've heard, maybe you haven't, but another great addition to Mike Tyson's biography and all the stuff that we've done on him previously. Well, 16 days after the, the long fight, he knocked out Robert Coley with two left hooks. The first one missed, but the second one knocked him out. It was over in 37 seconds. A week later, Tyson knocked out Sterling Benjamin in upstate Latham, New York with a short left hook. And then, after the eight count, he swarmed him, throwing devastating body blows and uppercuts. He crumbled to the canvas and the ref stopped the fight. Tyson recalled that the upstate crowd was going wild and I turned to face them, putting my gloves through the upper ropes, palms up and saluted them gladiator style. But I had more important things on my mind than my 11th pro victory. Cuss was very ill. Tyson went to visit Cuss a couple of days after his knockout victory. And this was his last memory written in his autobiography. And he said, Cuss was sitting in his bed eating ice cream. We talked for a few minutes and then Cuss asked Steve to leave the room so he could talk to me in private. That's when he told me he was dying from pneumonia. I couldn't believe what he was telling me. He didn't look morbidly ill. He was buffing. He had energy and zest. He was eating ice cream. He was chilling out. But I started freaking out. I don't want to do this shit without you, I said, choking back the tears. I'm not going to do it. Well, Cuss responded, well, if you don't fight, you'll realise that people can come back from the grave because I'm going to haunt you for the rest of your life. And then Tyson told him, okay. And then he took my hand. The world has to see you, Mike. You're going to be the champ of the world, the greatest out there, he said. Then Cuss started crying. That was the first time I ever saw him cry. I thought he was crying because he couldn't see me become heavyweight champion of the world after all we had gone through together. But soon I realised he was crying over Camille. I totally forgot that he had another partner who meant more to him than me. He told me he regretted that he had never married Camille because he had tax problems and he, he didn't want her to take them on. Mike... Just do me a favour, he said. Make sure you take care of Camille. So Tyson made his way to the bank from the hospital to collect the winnings from his last fight with his manager, Jimmy Jacobs, who stopped him and said, Cuss is not going to make it through the night, Mike. They say he has a few hours to live. Tyson recalled that he just started crying like it was the end of the world. It was. My world was gone. All the girls at the bank were staring at me. Is there a problem? said the bank manager. We just heard that a dear friend of ours is dying and Mike is taking it very hard, Jimmy said. He was cool and collected, just like that. Boom, no emotion, just the way Cuss trained him to be. Meanwhile, I was still crying like a lost soldier on a mission without a general. Cuss survived the night, but he passed away peacefully in the morning of November 4th, 1985, at the age of 77. At Cuss Amato's funeral, Jim Jacobs summed up his managerial partner and friend perfectly when he said, Custy Amato was violently opposed to ignorance and corruption in boxing. While Cuss was unyielding to his enemies, he was understanding, compassionate and incredibly tolerant with his friends. Now the irony of the story is that within two years, Cuss's prodigy would fall into the arms of a convicted felon, Mr Slippery Don King. 
Now, for the purpose of this episode, we want to give you, the listeners, a sense of how much Cussie's death affected Tyson and how it impacted him on future decisions. And there is no one better than the man himself to explain it. And he said, I shut down emotionally after Cuss died. I got really mean. I was trying to prove myself, show that I was a man, not just a boy. I flew to Texas a week after Cussie's funeral to fight Eddie Richardson. Jimmy and Caton didn't even let me mourn. So I brought along a photo of Cuss. I was still talking to Cuss every night. I'm going to fight this guy Richardson tomorrow, Cuss, I said. What do you think I should do? Even though I was functioning, I'd lost my spirit, my belief in myself. I lost all my energy to do anything good. I don't think I ever did get over his death. I was also mad at him when he died. I was so bitter. If he'd only gone to the doctors earlier, he could have been alive to protect me. But he wanted to be stubborn so he didn't get treated and he died and left me out there alone for these animals in the boxing world to take advantage of me. Just to break into that is, it just sums up what happens next for Mike Tyson. That's all we're going to say. We all know. And that's how much that death affected him badly. He just didn't teach him the values of life. He didn't get the chance. Tyson admitted that after Cuss died, I, I just didn't care about anything anymore. I was basically fired for money. I didn't really have a dream. It would be good to win the title, but I just wanted to get some wine, have fun, party, and get fucked up. But first, I fucked up Eddie Richardson. And that's exactly what he did. He certainly did that inside just one round before stopping Conroy Nelson just over a week later. Two rounds to go 13-0 with all of his fights, obviously, inside the distance. So that's where Tyson was at that time. Now we're going to jump, jump back to London, the Royal Albert Hall, to be more accurate. And Frank Bruno was on the cusp of his first world title. But first, he had to get past Larry Fraser on December the 4th, 1985. And he got the job done in just two rounds with blows to the body, which ended the bout. Fraser actually said afterwards that I've never been hit so hard. Bruno didn't fight again until the following year on the March, March 4th, 1986. And he took on Jerry Coetzee, who was 34 and one at Wembley Arena. Again, love that venue. And it was an elimination bout for the chance to take on the newly crowned WBA heavyweight champion, who was Tim Weatherspoon. Now, the press actually wrote on the fight the next day, and this is what it said. It said, Frank Bruno took exactly 110 destructive seconds to demolish a former world champion at Wembley last night and open the door to a £1 million jackpot. In the opening 60 seconds, Bruno unleashed the straight left and followed it immediately with a solid right cross into the face of the bewildered and dazed South African and down went Coetzee. He bounced back up and took a standing count of eight as blood trickled from a nick on his left cheek. The fight continued with Bruno once more on the attack and then came the combination that ended Coates' hopes of getting another chance of the world title. Bruno landed a punch of superpower that Coatsy landed in an undignified heap, sprawled senseless on the ring apron. Devastating power. Harry Carpenter sat ringside watching on as his favourite fighter had finally won a shot at the WBA heavyweight title. He recalled his admiration for Frank Bruno and he said, he was a godsend to the commentator. From my working point of view, he was the sort of successor to Muhammad Ali and I was very glad to have him. Together, Bruno and Harry formed a double act and that could be compared with Ali and Howard Cassell. We believe that when the late 
great Harry Carpenter compared Bruno as a successor to Ali. He wasn't actually comparing them by the boxing ability. He was comparing them by the way they were both adored by the public. Frank Bruno was cherished by the British public. He had elevated himself to the status of a cultural icon, capturing the nation's imagination and becoming a regular fixture on talk shows, television adverts, and during his semi-retirement in 89 and 90, he even embarked in a career in panto. Now, the working-class communities identified with Bruno. He was even the perfect example for the detested Tory establishment that was spearheaded by Margaret the Milk Snatcher Thatcher a successful black boxer who worked his way up from poverty and the temptations of crime to become a patriotic Brit. He really was a godsend. And even Lennox Lewis agreed by saying, the 80s were boring until Frank Bruno came along. He changed how people look at the sport. Every time he fought on TV, the public would go wild about it. Professor Ben Carrington said, Frank Bruno's unthreatening nature was the secret to his success. In Britain, Bruno came to respect the acceptable force of black masculinity. He was described by another reporter as being as cockney as steak and kidney pie. Bruno was adored, absolutely adored. And while Bruno was finally ready for this world title shot, Tyson, back to Tyson, had knocked out five opponents. Mark Young was a genuine live wire, a fight that Tyson remembered and he said, you feel that energy from their spirit. You feel it from their soul. And then you go back to, to your corner and you go, oh shit, or this guy's a pussy. Th- that night, it was, oh shit, he's coming to fight. Kevin felt it too. Kevin Rooney, that is. And he said that this is what Kevin told Tyson. Hit him with hard jabs and move your head. Don't forget to move your head. He's coming to fight. Well, he did get rid of him, obviously. And in January 1986, Mike Tyson knocked out David Jacko in one round. But it was after the victory that Tyson began to feel empty. So he went out with some friends after the fight. And the next day he went to visit Camille. And this is what he said. He said, about eight o'clock the next morning, I knocked on Camille's door. She opened it and I went inside and sat down. I didn't say anything. How did you make out? Camille asked me. I made out good. But I was looking for somebody who wasn't there, I said. And tears obviously started rolling down my cheeks. Cuss wasn't there. Everybody tells me I'm doing good, but nobody tells me if I do bad. It doesn't matter how good I would have done. Cuss would have probably seen something I did wrong. Tyson was clearly struggling for guidance and should have been given more time to grieve for, for the death of Cuss. And he actually told Sports Illustrated that I miss Cuss terribly. He was my backbone. All the things we'd worked on, they started to come out so well. But when it comes down to it, who really cares? I like doing my job, but I'm not happy being victorious. I fight my heart out, give it my best. And when it's over, there's no cuss to tell me how I did. No mother to show my clippings to. Even though Tyson was struggling outside the ring to come to terms with Cussie's death, he continued to blast his way for every tomato can put in front of him. Jesse Ferguson was next on February the 16th in New York. The fight was on ABC and was Tyson's first national television appearance. Trouble was, Ferguson had no intention of fighting. His aim was to survive for as long as he could by holding excessively, which was the reason why the referee finally disqualified him in the sixth round for clinching and refusing to break when ordered. Tyson told the live audience after the fight, I wanted to hit him on the nose one more time so that the bone of his nose would go up into his brain. 
I would always listen to the doctor's conclusions. They said that any time that nose goes into the brain, the consequences of him getting up right away are out of the question. His words obviously didn't go down too well. He was called a thug by one newspaper the next morning. Now, just over three weeks later, Tyson stopped Steve Zowski in three rounds. In the post-fight interview afterwards, he was critical of his own performance and he said, he was a game opponent and I have to give him a lot of credit for standing in and taking some good punches. I didn't like my performance. I have a lot of personal problems that I am just getting over, but I'm going to do all to the best of my ability to be ready for the 29th of May against James Tillis. Trouble was again by this point, Tyson was in self-destruction mode and admitted in his autobiography, I was a full-blown alcoholic when he wasn't training. He was drinking and he was partying away from the glare of the media. So the James Tillis fight had to be postponed because Tyson actually had an ear infection. This was correct and he did spend 10 days in hospital receiving antibiotics, but following his treatment, heavy drinking and partying, he was out of shape. Eventually, on May 3rd, 1986, the fight took place at the Civic Centre in New York and Tyson finally did take on James Tillis, who was 31 and 8 at the time. And this fight went the full 10 rounds and this was the first time in his career that he had gone the distance. The official verdict was a unanimous decision for Tyson, but it was very controversial with some actually suggesting that he had lost. But although it was not one of his most polished performances, uh, the flash knockdown in that fourth round effectively was enough to get him the nod. But it was an interesting fight. You know, if you haven't seen it, go back and have a look at it. People actually believe to this one fight. We believe Tyson did but it just shows you had the ear problem and obviously the drink problems at this point was it was it was taking its toll and but later that month Tyson made his Madison Square Garden debut and he went the full 10 rounds again but there was no arguments about this verdict and he won every single round against Mitch Bloodgreen who was 16 one and one and obviously for more details on the fight before during and after and just go and check out our dark side of boxing on Mitch Bloodgreen great episode now following two tougher opponents Tyson's level of opponents actually dipped again and he began knocking guys out he knocked out Reggie Gross and William Hoser both in one round in June and then Lorenzo Boyd in two rounds so we're going to jump back to Bruno Bruno was finally given his first world title shot against Tim Weatherspoon 24 and 2 Tim was on July 19 1986 at Wembley Stadium he was in front of 40,000 expecting British fans Bruno arrived in the ring just after 1am to accommodate the home box office, which televised the fight in the United States. ITV and the BBC actually shared delayed coverage of the fight. Both networks showed the fight the following day, ITV on a Sunday morning, the BBC in the evening. The fight itself had been rather dull for 10 rounds, with Witherspoon out jabbing Bruno in many of the rounds and was therefore ahead on all three judges' scorecards going into the 11th of a scheduled 15. Boxing news, however, had Frank Bruno up by one round. Well, the Associated Press reported on the last round of the fight, and it reads, Past the two-minute mark of the 11th round, Bruno landed a three-punch series to the head. Then Witherspoon crashed home an overhand right that sent Bruno reeling into a neutral corner. Bruno escaped, but Witherspoon, seeing the end was near, slammed three more overhand rights that dropped Bruno to a sitting position in Witherspoon's corner. The towel was immediately thrown in from Bruno's corner and referee Isidro Rodriguez of Venezuela saw it and stopped the fight without a count. Bruno recalled, 
I felt like I had been beaten by the best heavyweight around at that time. He was so underestimated, it was a tough fight for me, and I woke up looking like E.T. the next day. It was a war for 11 rounds, and I got beat by the better man that night. Frank had no objections to Lawless throwing in the towel, and he said, I had no problem with my coach, Terry Lawless, throwing that towel in. He feared for my safety, and he did what he thought he had to. According to reports of the time, 200 chairs were destroyed by the alcohol-induced fans. 27 were arrested, with 10 police officers injured in the process after the fight. Even when Witherspoon and his team managed to safely navigate themselves back to the dressing room, the danger wasn't over yet. Witherspoon recalled himself. We got back to the dressing room. We were all in there. Muhammad Ali was in there congratulating me. I was talking to Muhammad. Then we heard this big bang on the main doors. The fans were trying to knock down the doors to get us. There had to be a thousand people out there. Ali said, open the doors. And the security did. And he just said to them, just go away. The fight is over. And they just went. Ali kind of stepped to the front and probably saved our lives. What a great story there. Great stuff from Ali. And one week later after that in New York, and Tyson absolutely destroyed Joe's son, Marvis Frazier, 16-1 and one in a single round to go 24-0 and over 22 by way of knockout and was on the verge of a world title shot himself against Trevor Burbick. On August 17, he then won the 10-round distance with Jose Rebelta, a guy Tyson credits, along with Tillis, as one of the toughest fights he ever had at, to this point. And he recalled that he felt nauseous after Rebelta's body blows even hours after the fight. Rebelta and Tillis were the only two guys who ever made me feel like that, he said. So if you didn't know that, there you go. Uh, the body blows were hurting him there. I'm not surprised if you're drinking that much drink. The following month... Tyson went to Las Vegas to fight for the first time and said that he felt homesick. He was actually threatened to leave while training at Johnny Toco's gym. But it was just his nerves. They were basically just getting the better of him. So all he had to do now was beat Alfonso Rafalif and he would get that world title shot because it was part of HBO's heavyweight title unification tournament that was sort of Don King was in there as well with it. Which was and and on the it was actually on the undercard as well of Michael Spinks against Tangstead, so all the nerves, all this nervous energy, basically soon disappeared. Obviously, as soon as he entered the ring, and he knocked Raffaliff out in the second round. And Raffaliff actually said after the defeat, Tyson punched harder than a mule can kick. So you know, Tyson. If anyone, I've heard that a few times. A few fighters have said that. Tyson was back in Las Vegas for his first world title fight on November 22nd, 1986 against Trevor Burbick, 31-4-1. He was making his first defense of the WBC title. So we're going to use the report from Phil Berger of the New York Times. And he said that Tyson knocked Burbick down twice, both times in the second round, pounding him so hard that he had Burbick reeling across the ring at the end in a nearly comic loop the loop the end came late in the round when Tyson's left hook landed on Burbick's temple while well, Phil Berger's report summed up the comic ending for Trevor Burbick who was experiencing a delayed reaction he finally fell onto the seat of his shorts trying to regain his feet Burbick stumbled towards the rope near his corner and fell his arms flailed as he sought to right himself he lurched back toward where he had fallen originally in the centre of the ring and fell again once more, he sought to get to his feet, stumbling towards a neutral corner. By now, 
Referee Mills Lane's count had reached nine and Burbick had climbed off the canvas and onto his feet. But after Lane took a quick look at Burbick, he threw his arms around him and stopped the bout. Tyson had become the youngest heavyweight champion ever at the age of 20. And he said afterwards that he was just numb. I couldn't feel anything. I was conscious of what was going on around me, but I was just numb. Kevin hugged me. Jose Torres came over. I can't believe this man. I'm the fucking champion of the world at 20, I said to him. This fucking shit is unreal. Champion of the world at 20. I'm a kid. A fucking kid. Jimmy came into the ring and gave me a kiss. Do you think Cuss would have liked that? I asked, and Jimmy smiled in approval. Mike Tyson, 20 years old, a heavyweight champion. How does it feel to be wearing this belt? Well, at the moment, I waited for all my life since I started the game of boxing. And as everyone said, um, that Burbick, Burbick didn't have a chance. Burbick was a very tough, very strong, in fact, very, very strong. I was never expecting him to be as strong like that. I knew he was strong, but I didn't expect him to be as strong as me. And he was very strong. But I was, I was calm, and I was timing my punch. Every punch I threw, I threw a bad intention in a vital area. Everybody thought that the, the magnitude of this event, your youth, the fact that you have been a little too impatient in past fights might make this a longer fight. How did you feel coming into this fight? How are you prepared to fight him? Well, I told everybody um, I, I anticipated on a knockout because I was so calm, so relaxed, and I had so much belief in myself. Because my trainer, Kevin Rooney, and I, I want to get in here. We sacrificed so much and we put in so much, and I just knew we couldn't fail. What was your plan? What did you feel from him in the first round? Well, I, my, my plan was to stick my jab in his face, as you saw. It was hard in his face, and every punch was to throw with bad intention. Now, after becoming the world heavyweight champion, Tyson decided to pursue American actress Robin Givens after seeing her on the ABC sitcom Head of the Class. Tyson arranged a date through her friend, and when he arrived, she was with her mother, Ruth Roper, her sister, and a publicist. <laughs> He said that he needed taming, and in his own words, maybe Robin was just what the doctor ordered. A manipulative shrew who could bring me to my knees. I was like a fucking trained puppy dog around her. That's okay. Please, please, you can steal my money. But don't take the pussy away. Please, please. In the words of Mike Tyson himself. <laughs> he goes on the first date and she's sitting there with her mother. He basically entered a relationship with Ruth Roper as well. That's, that's what it is. Burbick, that knockout was just incredible. If you ain't seen that one, God, I'm mean, sure everyone has. It's crazy, eh? He just tries to recover. He can't, can he? Great description there as well by Phil Berger. But so on March 7, 1987, Tyson made his first defense of that WBC title against the WBA champion and uh, Bruno Victor, James Bonecrusher Smith, who was 19 and 5. And that was also part of this heavyweight unification series. This was Tyson's third fight in a row in Las Vegas, but this time it was at the Hilton Outdoor Arena. Smith proved his worth. He was no pushover, and he held on too much, probably, so he, he, he could try to stop and prevent the young Tyson from landing that knockout. But, I mean, you've had you've had a chat with him, Sean. I'm sure if you haven't heard that episode, Sean's had a chat with uh, Bone Crusher, and he goes into some detail about that, so do check that out. But, however, Tyson did take a clear unanimous decision victory. Following this, when Tyson actually travelled to England and met with Frank Bruno, he, he met him above the Royal Oak pub where the Londoner had trained during his professional career for a photo shoot in the ring. Now, while they actually posed for pictures, they seemed to be enjoying each other's company. 
Tyson then appeared on the Terry Wogan show in, in March of 1987. And Wogan asked, he said, Frank Bruno has always said that boxing really saved him from a life of crime. Would that be true of you? Because it has been said that you were a pretty rough diamond when you were young. And this is what Tyson replied. He said, I came from a very wild and active neighborhood when I was a young kid. But it's really difficult for me to believe that Frank Bruno was saved from a life of crime. Because after meeting this guy and talking to the guy, I can't picture him being a fighter. He's so thoughtful and he's such a sweet guy. You want to just give him a hug and give him a kiss. While still in England, Tyson actually held a press conference and was asked if he will fight Frank Bruno. Obviously, if it's going to be something that he's looking forward to. And his response came through that of his manager, Bill Caton. He said, we're looking forward to the possibility of fighting Bruno. A lot will depend on how Bruno goes against James Tillis. Well, the reason for Mike Tyson's visit to England was because he was weighing up his options while his next opponent in the unification tournament was arranged. It was supposed to be Michael Spinks, but he was stripped of his IBF title for refusing to fight Tony Tucker, the sanctioning body's number one contender. Instead, Spinks fought Jerry Cooney, but was still considered as the lineal world champion. In the end, Tucker fought and beat James Buster Douglas for the vacant IBF title, while Tyson waited for the announcement of his other opponent, which could have possibly been Bruno. Now back to Frank, and after failing at his first attempt... Bruno was adamant that he could fulfil what he believed to be his destiny and he said, My dream is to win the heavyweight championship of the world. I got my chance. I'm not letting him pass me. A good friend of Frank's and someone we've done a career profile on, the three-time world champion Duke McKenzie said this of Bruno. Frank never was great with speed, but he had a right hand that was probably like getting hit in the head with a tree trunk. Well, that hammer right hand was rampant at the Wembley Arena on March 24th, 1987 against James Tillis. Bruno's right hand accumulation of punches was enough to force Tillis into submission in the fifth round. Mike Tyson sat next to Harry Carpenter at ringside and after Bruno got the victory, he entered the ring and told him, I commend you, you came out very well and I'm very impressed. Frank thanked him and he said, That's very kind of you, Mike. Tyson then said to him, I look forward to meeting you in the future. Both fighters shook hands and praised each other respectfully in front of the cameras while the crowd cheered gleefully. However, they would not fight for another two years. When Tyson returned home from England, he actually crashed his $180,000 silver Bentley convertible, the equivalent of just under half a million in 2022. He crashed it into a parked car in Lower Manhattan. Now, reportedly, because Robin Givens, who was in the passenger seat, actually slapped him around the face while he was behind the wheel. When two police officers offered to help, Tyson handed them over the keys to his car and said, I've had nothing but bad luck and accidents with this car. You have it. Initially, the actual police officers, you know, rightfully declined the gift. But when he insisted, they accepted the car and they parked the car in a private garage in Jersey City. However, they were later caught and ordered to return it and find a couple of months' wages. But what a story. With That's incredible. Imagine being handed a keys to that. I would probably nick it at all, but I would have sold it a lot sooner rather than park it in a garage. Where with trouble following Tyson pretty much everywhere he went. He was back in Vegas a week later, and he, he defended his title against Pinklin Thomas, who was a 29-1-1 on May 30th, 1987. 
Now, after a fast start where Tyson came out throwing bombs, he realized he was unable to get rid of Thomas quickly. By the fifth, Thomas felt that Tyson was tiring and his plan to tire him out was working. However, a split appeared in one of Tyson's gloves and they had to be replaced. The delay, Pinkland recalled, of nearly 10 minutes allowed Mike to catch his breath and revitalize himself and he was refreshed and ready to go. He was then able to take care of business in the sixth round, knocking Thomas out. Now, do check out our Dark Side of Boxing episode on Pinkland Thomas, and he does explain a bit more detail in that fight, a lot more other stuff that happens in his life. Tyson then added to the collection of heavyweight gold by retaining the WBC and WBA titles and taking the IBF from the undefeated Tony Tucker, 34-0, by a unanimous decision. After a couple of months break, Tyson returned to defend his world titles on October 16 against another undefeated fighter in Tyrell Biggs, 15-0. Sam Smith of the Chicago Tribune wrote about the finish. It ended at 2 minutes and 59 of the seventh round when another Tyson left hook sent Biggs flying into the corner where his body thudded to the canvas with his feet in the air. An absolutely devastating knockout. Well, while Tyson continued to reign supreme, Bruno opted to head off to France and then Spain during the summer of 1987. He knocked out Chuck Gardner in one round and then on 30th of August he stopped Reggie Gross in Marbella after eight. One week later, when Frank Bruno took a significant step on the road towards a showdown with the unified world heavyweight champion Mike Tyson when he beat Joe Bugner at White Hart Lane in North London. Bruno was due to fight Trevor Burbick in the September, but when his opponent pulled out through injury, Bugner, 37, stepped in for a Battle of Britain clash at White Hart Lane. Now, the independent newspaper here in the UK wrote, Battle lines were drawn. The former British, European and Commonwealth champion who had fought Muhammad Ali for the world title in June 1975 had been less than complimentary about the 25-year-old's fans' favourite in the run-up to the bout. And although he went into the ring almost two stone heavier, both the bookmakers and the crowd were firmly behind Bruno. The younger, fitter man gradually wore the durable Bugner down with his punishing jab before unleashing a barrage, and referee John Coyle called a halt at the end of the eighth round as the towel came in. Frank Bruno, many congratulations first of all, Frank. How much did that victory mean to you? Um, it was a part of my life and I couldn't have walked the streets tonight if Joe would have beat me. He's a very good, experienced guy. A lot of people knew he was experienced. They knew it was a good fight. A lot of people thought he was going to beat me tonight. But I thank God. I thank my manager, Terry Lawless. I thank George Francis, Frank Black. Right. I thank everybody, especially Barry Hearns, for giving me the opportunity and thank Joe Bugner. Frank, how much pressure on there was you, was there tonight to actually knock him out, to actually stop him as opposed to put, beating him? Put the, um, the camera in all the crowd. There's, all of England was on, on my back and I had to knock him out and I did knock him out. And this is all um, for people, a Christmas present for everybody. Just tell us about your view of how the fight finished. Um, well, it's difficult to it say. I, just be coming yeah. up here with a bit of luck, Frank. Where's Harry anyway? <laughs> <laughs> Haven't seen him anywhere. After the fight, Jim Rosenthal stepped into the ring to interview Frank and he recalled, I can remember interviewing him after the Buckner fight as we had the fight on ITV as opposed to most of his fights that were on the BBC. And he came over to me and I went to ask him a question and he went, hold on, where's Harry? Harry, Carpenter, who wasn't on commentary duty that night, said, you like characters. If you're working in this business, you want characters. You don't want plain ordinary people who have nothing to say for themselves. It was nice if you could get a bit of fun out of them. 
Tyson was and, and Bruno were both certainly that. They were both characters in their own right, a completely different one lovable and one a rogue. But to kick off the new year, jumping back to Mike Tyson, he took on the former world heavyweight champion in Larry Holmes, who was at the time 48 and two. Those two defeats obviously coming to Spinks, and he fought him in Atlantic City. Holmes had not fought for two years and only took the fight because Don King offered him a, a suitcase of cash. We'll check out Larry Holmes's career profile for more details on that. The 38-year-old was well out of his depth and Tyson ended the fight in the fourth with a heavy right and false referee Joe Cortez to wave the fight off. It was just a ridiculous fight. The following month on February 7, 1988, Mike Tyson and Robin Givens, they actually got married. And he would later say that she actually tricked him into it because she lied about being pregnant. Well, later that month, Tyson's mentor, Jimmy Jacobs, actually died of leukemia. He refuses in Mike Tyson to believe it, that he was sick enough and that he might die and pass away. He struggled with it and he struggled with another loss in his life. And he actually told the media when they tried to question him, he was just too upset to say anything. However, he was upset at Bill Caton for getting him to sign a contract, a new contract, a two-year deal. Tyson said at the time that he wouldn't have signed it if he knew Jimmy Jacobs would die. But to be fair to Caton, he was the one person within his entourage at this time that had his best interests at heart. Obviously, financial gains for him, but he was the, the, the long-term man. And he was the only one who tried to stick to the foundations that Cuss had laid out. But their bond was not as strong as the one he had with Cuss and Jimmy. So back to the ring. And in March, he actually retained the WBC, WBA and IBF titles against Tony Tubbs, who was 24-1 with a second round stoppage in Tokyo, Japan. Although Tyson continued to dominate in the ring, he was playing second fiddle in his battles outside of it. And he recalled that everybody was vying to get control over me with Jimmy out of the picture. The women, as in Robin and Ruth, had a meeting with me and Bill and their attorney, Michael Winston. Well, Tyson continues the story and he says, they got all the financial records, but they couldn't understand any of it. So we showed the records to Don King. That was just the wedge he needed. And he began poisoning Robin and Ruth's mind about Caton because Caton was trying to cut Don out of my future promotions. The truth is, I was pretty oblivious to all this intrigue swirling around me. I had one of the biggest fights of my career in June, a showdown with Michael Spinks, who in some people's minds was the people's heavyweight champ. I was training for that. I wasn't interested in going over any goddamn contracts line by line. Don King had now wormed his way into Tyson's inflated entourage after promoting many of his fights. He now wanted to be his sole manager. On June 27th, Tyson finally got the chance to become the undisputed heavyweight champion against Michael Spinks, who was 31-0, which at the time was the richest fight in boxing history, grossing $70 million, of which Tyson earned a record purse of around $20 million and Spinks earned $13.5 million. The fight was a complete mismatch that lasted just 91 seconds. We've spoken about this fight in our career profile of Michael Spinks. Please do go and check out that. Tyson now had retained the WBC, the WBA, and IBF World Heavyweight titles and won the Ring Magazine belt. He was now the absolute best heavyweight in the world, without question. But his outside antics would result in one of the most dramatic falls from grace ever seen in any sport. Straight after the fight, 
Tyson sued Caton to break their contract and then settled out of court, reducing Caton's managerial share from one third to 20% of purses. So, I mean, this is the build-up to the first fight, which goes on a while, but this is how it rolls. And then sticking with Tyson, the, the power struggle of control of Mike Tyson, the biggest sporting star in the world, intensified after that Spinks win. And Caton said that Don King is making moves, I guess, to take over. It's something a lot of people told me he would try. People familiar with the history of Don King, and, and one of those people was Cust- Castillo Castillo told Tyson, which we haven't really mentioned, but he told Tyson to stay away from Don King. When on October the 26th, Mike Tyson does enter a partnership with Don King. And the thick skin manager who Caton actually called Satan gloated, I paid fighters more money than anyone in the history of the sport. Only thing I can be guilty of is hitting them in the head with $100 bills. Well, after the court case, Mike travelled with Robin Roof and that publicist to Russia, where I think she was filming Robin, where it was actually reported that Tyson chased his wife, his mother-in-law and that publicist down the corridors of the hotel because he was having difficulties settling and sleeping. Tyson had completely lost the plot there by now. And, and he left Russia early without the two women and that bloody publicist. Now, while Tyson's life was in chaos outside of the ring, he and Frank Bruno actually signed to face each other in London, England, for the richest fight in British boxing history. Now, ITV News actually even broke the story. Frank Bruno is hoping to beat American Tyson and so become the first Briton this century crowned as the heavyweight boxing champion of the world. It was a big deal. The fight was signed to take place at Wembley Stadium in front of 90,000 on Saturday, October the 8th, 1988. Bruno held a press conference and told the media, there's no man unbeatable at all and there's only one God. He was told he was only doing it for the money uh, as there was a reported 1 million quid for him. And Bruno responded, yeah, the money does help pay the light bills and put petrol in the car. Bruno was asked about Tyson's persona and the fear factor that he brings. And he said, it's people like you that are making him sound like he's a monster. I'm one stone heavier than him and he's fighting in my country. So I'm happy. Dave Davis, Bruno's agent, recalled the buzz around a Tyson-Bruno fight and said there was a tremendous excitement about the possibility of Bruno and Tyson fighting. And Frank, with his big laugh, the guy that trained above the Royal Oak pub, wanted to disprove the doubts that people had. Unfortunately, those doubts were not going to be disproven because the fight was initially pushed back to October the 22nd, when Tyson broke his hand in a street fight with his former opponent, Mitch Green, on August the 23rd, 1988. Again, we refer to that episode on Mitch Green. Please go and have a listen to that and that fight outside Dapper Dan's. Now, if things couldn't get any worse for Tyson, a month later, he crashed his car into a tree, which rendered him unconscious for 20 minutes. New York Associated Press wrote this on the incident. Mike Tyson, knocked out by a tree in a one-car wreck, will undergo more medical tests while his representatives debate whether he'll be able to defend his title next month. Tyson was knocked unconscious for several minutes when his BMW skidded into a tree in a friend's yard in Catskill, New York. Tyson was staying with Camille and confessed that he drove the car into the tree on purpose, not to commit suicide, but to get attention from Robin Givens. Clearly, he wasn't very well mentally. 
So what do you do next? Well, you get help, don't you? No, not in Mike's case. You participate in that very famous interview with ABC television with his wife, where she described her marriage as pure hell and that Mike was a manic depressive who terrorised her. Robin, some of the things that we've read, that he's hit you, that he's chased you and your mother around in, in Russia, that Mike has a very volatile temper, true? Extremely volatile temper. I think people see that about every three months. Um, he is, he's got a side to him that's scary. Michael is intimidating, to say the least. I think that there's, there's a time when he cannot control his temper, and that's frightening to me or to my mother um, and to anyone around. It, it's scary. Givens told ABC that she was physically abused by Tyson, that he had thrown her from one corner of the wall, bounced off that corner of the wall to another corner, and then she was out at cold. His assistant manager, Steve Locke, called it humiliating. He then went on to say that Tyson's demons were being laid bare on national television and he just sat there and said nothing. During their turbulent relationship, Tyson went to visit Givens in Vancouver. While there, he was out running and he actually assaulted a TV crew by throwing a rock at the camera while they were videoing him on his morning run and here is footage of it. He's actually then filed for divorce in October and then in the following month, filed a $125 million defamation suit against her husband. The lawsuit accused Tyson of holding up givings to public contempt, ridicule, embarrassment, disgrace and prejudice. Tyson responded in a newspaper saying that she was trying to steal his money. Tyson and Robin Givens finally ended their turbulent one-year marriage on Valentine's Day in 1989. Givens was given a re reported $10 million for the the divorce settlement she's she claimed she never took it but you know she was given it while back in training tyson actually hurt his hand in sparring which eventually forced the fight to be cancelled bill Caton then said it's a completely new ball game whether the fight will be in london or the us but just to jump back to givens that he, he did admit that he, he hit her that this woman didn't deserve to get hit but she was an absolute pain in the ass there's no doubt about it Frank Bruno was left devastated with the news. Obviously, now it's, it's, it's not happening. It's sad, he said, because I've done a solid four months training for this fight and I've been away from home for four months and it's been hard taking it, to be honest. I've put in a lot of work. Then he went on to explain why it was a missed opportunity for him. He said, people have been saying you're crazy. You shouldn't go in the same ring as him. He's busted his hand. He's done his ribbing. He's done his brain. He's braining and, and he's confused at the moment. So why wouldn't you think I have much of much more of a better chance than then? I mean, it's true. You've got to make Bruno right. It was probably the perfect time to fight Mike Tyson. Not only was it a missed chance for Bruno, but it was also a missed opportunity to make a ridiculous amount of money for both. In the first week of the fight going on sale, two and a half million dollars in ticket sales were already made, which was the biggest ever at the time. Now, you can understand the date being changed because of the head injury Tyson suffered in the crash. But the venue really should have remained in London. Bill Caton, who was now out of the picture, told Boxing News. King convinced him, as in Tyson, not to go over there to London because Jarvis Astaire and Mickey Duff would not allow King to be involved in the promotion. Bruno lost out on fighting in front of his beloved fans and making a lot more money plus his chance was heightened greater than ever when Tyson sacked his trainer, Kevin Rooney, for publicly commenting on his failed marriage. 
Rooney was then replaced by Aaron Snowell and Jay Bright. The fight was rescheduled for January the 14th, 1989 and set to take place in Las Vegas, which of course disappointed Bruno, but he was still happy to get the chance to win a world title. His purse was doubled to $2 million due to being messed around, but way short of what he would have earned should it have been originally in London. Now to make things worse, the fight was postponed for a fifth time, not because of Tyson this time, but because of a financial disagreement between Bill Caton and Don King. Frank Bruno wrote this in his autobiography, Frank Fighting Back on Tyson, and he said, The guy started to go seriously off the rails. He was in deep trouble with his managers, his wife and Don King. Not a bad trio. It was like a very bad episode of EastEnders. Finally, on December the 15th, 1988, it was officially announced that the long-awaited Mike Tyson and Frank Bruno fight would take place on February the 25th, 1989, at the Las Vegas Hilton in Nevada. Frank Bruno packed up his suitcase and headed off to LA. But while at Gatwick Airport, he was actually asked if the fight would go on as planned, and he said, I'm very, very confident that it's going to happen this time. I'm not going there for the suntan. Bruno was right. He wasn't there for the tan. But Colin Hart recalls that he hated being away from home and, and he was actually very homesick. Now, while training, he made appearances on television shows to publicize himself and the fight. He actually appeared on Terry Wogan's show again over a video feed and told the millions watching at home that he was missing home and his family. And in a nice touch, Wogan actually surprised Bruno by bringing out his two daughters, Rachel and Nicola, so he could see them. For the younger listeners, video calls were not access- accessible as they are today back in the 80s. So it was a big deal. And Bruno, having not seen his wife and daughters since Christmas, shed a tear. In front of the, the thousand millions probably watching at home. It was a big show after his youngest actually kissed the screen after seeing her dad. Not only was it difficult to be away from his family, but Bruno had a hard time while trying to prepare weeks before the fight and right up until the very moment he was in the dressing room for the fight. And this is what he recalled. He said, out in Vegas, we'll try to go to certain restaurants. We had a soul food restaurant that I tried to go to every time I was there, but Tyson's got Las Vegas all sussed out. He knows all the tricks to play. He and Don King would play the silly things. Don King's got about 200 guys at the fight, walking us into, into the fight, very slippery, but that's the way they played it. In someone's backyard, they will do everything to make you unstable, send people to your room, keep you waiting. It's all tactics. I had to try and stay calm and get on with it. If you know the nature of the beast, that is what he tried to do, intimidate people so the fight was won before a punch was thrown. Bruno continued to say, Don King was a master of it. Frank Warren can manipulate. He's got the money. They use psychology on you. Don King went to prison. And what he learned about psychology, he got more slippery. On February the 22nd, 1989, a sports writer, Dave Raffo, wrote about the sparring sessions in the Catskill Mountains between the two fighters. Mike Tyson initially said he battered the Englishman in those workouts and that it gave Bruno just a small taste of what it would be like to challenge the heavyweight champion. Bruno said the two sparred about 30 rounds and he did well. And he said, I remember being very happy when I left the gym. I looked forward to doing it in front of a paying audience one day. Little did I know how long it would take. He told the BBC, 
I got to know him from there at the Catskills. I didn't really see him as the knockout specialist or baddest man on the planet. I saw him as a normal human being. In another interview, Bruno was asked, George, as in Francis Bruno's trainer, has said he's going to turn you into an animal. Now you've always been the most lovable pussycat. Bruno simply replied, I'll be an animal because it's just so important to me, as in to win a world title. He was confident of becoming a world champion and said that being down to earth would be the route to his success. And he said, as long as I keep my feet on the ground and don't start being a playboy and everything like that, I should build up all the time. During fight week, Don King went too far, causing controversy when he told the media Bruno would be returned to Britain in an incapacitated state. Now at the final press conference, Bruno said, Don King has tried to make Mike Tyson out to be Superman, but I got kryptonite to be him. Great response. And it was during the weigh-in that Tyson tried to uh, intimidate Bruno, as he did with all of his opponents, and he actually reflected on it. As in Frank, he said that he, as in Tyson, had a lot of entourage around, chatting a lot of rubbish. But it's it's a fight and it's and a war. He was looking at me, trying to intimidate, and I was looking at him the same. He was a fearsome, dangerous sort of guy and had an intimidation he put on people. Not me, though, but the way the TV built him up in America, I could see the point of view of people saying he had a presence. Tyson actually remembered that Bruno didn't look scared. He actually said that, like most of opponents, he had, hadn't beaten before a punch was thrown, but Bruno wasn't wasn't falling for it. And, and Tyson said that the way in Bruno attempted to stare me down, so I pulled my shorts down and showed him my pubic hair. Lennox Lewis actually recalled that if there was one guy, this is at the time, if there was one guy to beat Mike Tyson, it was Frank Bruno because he had the stature, the strength and the power. Harry Carpenter said anybody who hits like Frank has got a chance with anybody in the world because you only have to hit them once in the right place at the right time and you've won. Terry Lawless, his trainer, simply said, he needed the biggest shock in boxing history. BBC Two commentator Ian Dark offered a dose of reality and hope in one swift line. Of course, we don't think Frank can do it, but there's always that tantalising little chance that one punch would stun the world. It's nerve-wracking, but I was hungry, ready for business. However, Hugh McElvenny predicted that Bruno would be like a Labrador at the mercy of a Wolverine. This was more than just a fight. It was a symbol of absolute good in the shape of the beloved British heavyweight champion, heavyweight since since Henry Cooper in, in Bruno and in Tyson, the menace of society, who was so dangerous that he identified himself as the baddest man on the planet. News channels across the world made the fight mainstream as boxing edged into public small talk with more than 2 million people in Britain tuning in to BBC Radio 2 in the early hours to see if Bruno, 32-2 and two with 31 KOs, could upset the 22-year-old that many felt was invincible. The hype that surrounded the fight affected Bruno. Years later, he admitted, The week of the fight, you're supposed to be tapering down, but we had a lot of press conferences with Don King promoting and controlling it. It was like he was fighting, not me or Mike Tyson. It was highly stressful and very demanding. Every minute you had to do some radio, talk to press, go on TV, do chat shows. It was very draining. 
The Las Vegas Hilton paid $7 million to host the fight, but only sold $4.3 million in tickets. John Giovenko, the president of the Hilton Nevada Corporation, said the demand for tickets was very disappointing. The boxing public doesn't appear ready to pay the price that is necessary for us to cover the site fee being charged for the fight. That was a whopping $2.7 million loss on ticket sales and the average ticket price probably couldn't have helped the situation when it was priced at the average $700 a ticket. Now, if the fight had stayed at Wembley, some suggest that it would have generated a minimum of $50 million due to Bruno's public appeal. And Tyson, of course, being the biggest name in the sport, let alone boxing at the time. Bruno lacked exposure in America, which explained the shortfall. And the man to blame was Don King. However, as the Brits always do when our favourites are fighting in America, we took 2000 to support Bruno, paying hefty prices for tickets in the process. Don King made a, he normally makes a, sh- a shitload of money. He made a big mistake there because he couldn't get his, his face involved, unfortunately. The fight was actually aired live on HBO. Desmond Lynham and Harry Carpenter were on commentary duty for the BBC. The referee calling the action was Richard Steele. The three judges were Jerry Roth, Rodolfo Mandelondo and Omar Mintern. So they were the three judges and it was actually promoted by Don King Promotions or Productions. Obviously with him, with that first fight getting cancelled and he took it over. Tyson was 35 and over 31 KOs who had been out of the ring eight months and was, was the eight to one favourite. It was seven, seven and a half to one, eight, eight to one favourite. That was pretty much what it was. And he took the largest share of $7 million. Bruno, 27, who had been out of the ring twice as long as the champ was the number one heavyweight contender for the WBA, WBC, would eventually get $3.6 million. Among the 10,000 ringside at the Las Vegas Hilton was Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone, Muhammad Ali, Sugar Ray Leonard, Sting, Pierce Brosnan, Don Bon Jovi, Luther Vandross, and Whitney Houston. In the city which has been the site of so many big boxing events over the past decade, we are live at the Las Vegas Hilton in Las Vegas, Nevada. Where tonight, undisputed heavyweight champion Mike Tyson will defend his title against the WBC and WBA number one contender, Frank Bruno. It's scheduled for 12 rounds. The long wait is over. After eight months, Mike Tyson climbs back into the very ring where he won the heavyweight title over two years ago. And this fight takes place on the anniversary of a very propitious date in boxing history. 25 years ago tonight, Cassius Marcellus Clay, soon to become Muhammad Ali, knocked out and upset the knockout artist Sonny Liston to become heavyweight champion and introduce the modern era of boxing, some would say the modern era of sports in America. This is an excited crowd. Some of it having flown here from England to root for Frank Bruno, most of these people having waited a long time for the re-emergence in the ring of the heavyweight champion of the world, Mike Tyson. Hello again, I'm Jim Lapley, and all of us welcome you to this momentous occasion. We have waited, as has the boxing public, through eight months of delays, sometimes with frustration, sometimes with mounting anger, as this fight was postponed no fewer than five different times. 
very shortly it will finally take place. I'm working as always with the noted boxing journalist Larry Merchant. And Larry, when last we saw Tyson fight on June 27 of last year when he knocked out Michael Spinks, this bout was scheduled to be held in London because there was some concern as to how difficult it might be to sell tickets here in the United States. Now it is a widely anticipated occasion. Why? Well, Jim, you can put the blame on those old box office standbys, sex, money, and power. Mike Tyson married a woman who thought their personal lives should be a photo opportunity. He added his own 22-year-old's craziness, and they lived unhappily ever after in public. So public, it was bizarre. Entertaining, but bizarre. And now everyone wants a ringside seat at Mike Tyson's circus. They want to see this man-child who lives recklessly, breaks all the rules, and still comes out punching. Bruno recalled the moment Tyson entered the ring, and he said he walked around me like a wild animal to intimidate. But that is what he was all about. Right, so we're just going to move into the fight. So we're both going to run through this, Sean. Round one is pretty much the biggest deal of the fight. So round one, Duke McKenzie. In round one, Tyson's like a bull. This is Duke McKenzie saying this. He just charged at Bruno. And in the first few seconds after an onslaught of punches, Bruno went down in the worst possible start he could have ever imagined. Just 12 seconds had elapsed when Bruno crashed to the canvas near the ropes. The destruction job many had actually predicted appeared set to play out. Dark said on Radio 2 commentary, a right puts Bruno down in the opening seconds. He's up at two, but that's a bad sign. What a terrible start for Bruno. Desmond Lynham said, that must have been a dreadful blow to his morale. And as Richard still proceeded to count as he rose back to his feet, Teddy Atlas actually recalled that, I think Tyson thought that this was going to be one way. It was going to be easy cake. But Frank was fighting to win. Bruno reflected on that moment and he said, I just gritted my teeth. I had to show some guts and determination and I wanted to hit him harder than I'd ever hit anybody. It was pride, ego and embarrassment that all fed into one. As Tyson went in for the kill, he actually got caught with a left hook that wobbled him, forcing Harry Carpenter to shout the famous line, Get in there, Frank. He's hanging on, but Tyson is certainly getting the best of it. He's bleeding from the nose. He was down in the very early seconds as Tyson nails him with the uppercut. Now Frank comes very slowly across the ring. He knows he's in with the ball. Tyson gets nailed with a left hook. Tyson looks wobbly as he attacks Bruno. Bruno continues to throw. Tyson was caught and wobbled. Tyson looks clear, but he was caught by a shot by Frank Bruno. Tyson trying to fight back, and Bruno did catch him with a shot. That's the first time I've seen anything like Tyson staggered. Colin Hart said, I couldn't quite believe what I was seeing. Des Lynham said in commentary, nobody has hurt Tyson before, but Bruno did. Duke McKenzie recalled, I'm out of my seat because I actually thought that he could win. In radio commentary, Ian Dark said, what an opening round this is. A left hook from Bruno wobbles Tyson and they give one another a glance at the bell. Bruno recollected, I did rock him, only for a little bit. His leg buckled, he dipped a bit. I was trying to follow up. His height being a bit smaller was his advantage as he ducked and weaved to recover for a bit. It was a good moment. As the bell ended the first round, the crowd went wild in approval and HBO commentator Larry Merchant echoed the same thoughts as Dark. 
One man down, another man wobbled. I'll take it. Teddy Atlas reminded, nobody likes to get hit in the head by anybody, much less a big strong guy like Bruno. And I'm sure that from a mental standpoint, Tyson's expectations were turned. So we're now going to move into round two to five. And Bruno had some other good moments in the next two rounds. But Tyson started to take control back before going up a gear. Earl Gutsky of the Los Angeles Times reported, For parts of the second, third and fourth rounds, Tyson was missing and losing his footing with wild leaping left hooks. Unfortunately, for the 6 foot 4 inch 228 pound Bruno, he wasn't mobile or quick enough to take advantage of the numerous opportunities Tyson presented. And Gusky continued that Bruno was successful however at tying up Tyson when he missed with a with right hands creating a Greco-Roman wrestling match for much of the time he was also successful at holding the short of 511 Tyson by the back of the neck in in the clinches one of Tyson's new cornermen Aaron Snowwell actually chased Steele across the ring after the third round to complain however it wasn't Snowwell who should have been complaining. It was a bloodied Bruno who was punched illegally after the bell signal to end that fight, which prompted no action from referee Richard Steele. And Bruno did say that it was in Tyson's favour final America, having a referee there and whatever. If you watch the fight, he was doing some tricky business. This is not a cricket or badminton. It's different rules. So he, he, he accepted it. And when Bruno returned to the corner after that third, when he was doing pretty well, he was told to put pressure on him. But all the combinations of the of the fight being postponed, it was all getting to me. So after that third, I think Frank was feeling the effects. And Frank, clearly, the non-activity and from Tyson just being in the ring and doing the damage he was and, and the punishment he was getting, it, it, the tide just swung. It completely shifted into the champion's direction. And then in the fifth, Bruno... Held on valiantly with his nose and mouth now bleeding. He took numerous punches while his back was on the ropes. And Gusky again reported the finish. And it was a, a thumping left hook to the jaw, sent Bruno into the ropes near Tyson's corner. And the champion was all over his challenger, measuring his helpless opponent and hitting him like a man chopping down a tree with an axe. After Bruno had taken four or five powerful blows to the head, still stepped in, at 2 minutes and 55 seconds of the fifth, just as Terry Lawless was coming through the ropes. But what a finish it is. It was a finish. And for all intents and purposes, it was a pretty decent fight for, for as long as it lasted. And, you know, going through the accounts of Bruno and Tyson, recollecting on it, we've got a little bit more, obviously, about this first fight, but just stepping in to give our thoughts on it. Obviously, I was very young when this fight took place, so I never really got to see it until a few years down the line. However, when I did see it and Frank Bruno lands that left in the first and that first round ends, you just kind of get this feeling. Like even knowing the result, like Frank had that chance, that opportunity at that time to capitalise on it. And for one reason or another, he just couldn't do that. And Tyson just took control of it. I think Tyson was ripe for the taking at this point. As we know, subsequently what would go on to happen, as we'll discuss, you know, I think he was ripe for taking. Yeah, I do. I do. And I think Bruno didn't capitalise on it. And yeah, he shook Tyson. Tyson hadn't been shook like that before. Everyone was, as you, as we've just pointed out, you know, the amazement of it. I mean, I, as, again, I was young, but I do remember being in primary school when I remember my neighbour, literally my next door neighbour used to be a massive Tyson fan and I was the Bruno camp and uh, we was in 
primary school discussing it. And so I do remember, I don't remember watching the fight, but I remember having the discussions because our dads were like, obviously having a bit of banter with each other. But, you know, it was, it was a huge moment. And obviously we'll get into the, what happens after, but, yeah, you're right, Sean. That was the moment he could have seized his opportunity and for whatever reason, like as he says, it was just everything, a combination of everything, all the cancellations and obviously Tyson as well being in the ring as ferocious as, as he was, even though all the stuff that was happening outside of it, I just think that just, that's that's what, what, what hindered Bruno. Now, as Bruno reached his dressing room, he was asked by an American reporter, was he intimidated by Tyson? And Bruno's response was, I wasn't intimidated one little bit. I'm more intimidated by you. He then disappeared into his dressing room and onto his hotel to be with his family and friends. Years later, he said that he felt proud of himself that night, and he said, I went in there to make a fight of it, and did. So I have nothing to feel ashamed of. He was very ferocious, nasty, vicious, and a unique boxer. He was an animal, and that's what you have to be to get into a ring. It was unbelievable to be involved in. I left school, was diagnosed dyslexic, tried to work a normal job on a building site, as a metal polisher, as a shop assistant, and then went into boxing. It was a gamble. I had a good innings and eventually got my dream of fighting for the world championship. Tyson was asked outside the venue if Bruno hurt him and he replied, Well, he was throwing hard punches. I got hit with some hard punches, but I refused to be hurt. At the post-fight press conference, Tyson said, I knew that he was going to be tough. He read the papers and he was so psyched out and that he said, This is the peak time to beat Mike Tyson. And I knew... He had that in his mind, and I knew he was serious to fight. But years later, Tyson admitted, I went out in the first round to knock him out, trying to catch him with solid shots. He was taking them. He came back with a good couple of shots. He was fighting good. As a matter of fact, he staggered me with a good shot in the first round. It was like electricity. I saw white lights. You don't know if you're down or not. He was at his best at that time, and he was a tough fight for me. It was nice to see him, obviously, admitting later on when he was out of that mental state of mind that he was in that you know he really was hurt by that Frank Bruno shot yeah it is isn't it and the, the white lights is a common thing a common thing from boxers when you get hit like that and if you haven't been hit before I'm sure we all have we all know what it means the referee Richard still actually concluded that Bruno was courageous but a beaten fire when the end came Frank's girlfriend Laura Mooney summed up the public feeling in Britain after his defeat perfectly she said frank left the ring he wasn't a loser because he's got the support that mike tyson will never have and because people don't truly love him and they love frank if tyson walked out that ring a loser he'd have nobody he he hasn't got what frank's got frank's got a family that adore him and he's never a loser to us because he's ours he's our frank and that's basically what the nation felt to be fair she felt it and everyone did now, you would have thought that the defeat would have ended Frank's career. He's limelight in the, in the career, in his career anyway. But it was the manner of his defeat that made him loved by the public even more. He actually arrived back in England, not as a loser, but as a hero. But he was honest about his disappointment. He said, it's so difficult, you know. Like when I went in there, 100% confident, I got knocked down. So that messed up my confidence, my balance and everything. But I'm not making excuses. Mike Tyson is a good fighter and I can't take that away from him. Well, in contrast, Mike Tyson, the winner and clearly the best heavyweight in the world, was only a year away from imploding. Chaos surrounded the champion before the fight and it never disappeared after it. Camille watched her foster son from outside. He used to visit her sometimes, but from the outside and could see the sharks that surrounded him. 
They don't care about Mike. They care about money. Ted Atlas, who was also witnessing Tyson imploding from a distance, said the undoing of Tyson had had started already. The reckless behaviour, the chaos, it was allowed more. Add an arsonist in, in the midst, and the problem is King was still giving him matches. For all the dramas that surrounded him, he still found a way to win. Just five months later, he stopped Carl Williams 22-2 in one round in Atlantic City. But his fall from grace was just around the corner, and that would come in Tokyo at the turn of the new decade. Moving to Franken, he had found a new career. Away from boxing, we mentioned it earlier, he'd now become a TV personality, and he appeared on endless talk shows and moved onto the stage in pantos. He cashed in on his publicity and decided not to retire from boxing completely, but he opted to take a break from the ring and earn money in other ways. It was his soft side and catchphrase, you know what I mean, Harry, that reached out to audiences beyond boxing. Teddy Atlas described his opinion on Bruno as a person that made him successful outside the ring, but hindered him inside of it. And he said, Frank cared about other things. He cared about what other people wanted. He cared about what people thought about him. That could have been a weakness. In December 1989, the BBC Overseas Sports Personality Award went to Mike Tyson for remaining undefeated and for still being the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. He was presented the award by Harry Carpenter as Frank Bruno watched on somberly. Inevitably, Tyson was asked to give a message to Bruno and he said, How you doing, Frank? Give us a little verse. Let's hear what you're going to sing. Frank looked a little flustered and embarrassed, but quickly turned his attentions away from Panto to boxing and wanted to ask Tyson if a rematch was still on. Instead, Des Lynham, who was presenting the show, showed a video clip of him on Noel Edmonds' show wearing a dress and playing the fool. Yeah, all the stars in the crowd actually found it hilarious, whereas you could see in Bruno's face that he felt like the country were taking the mick out of him in front of Mike Tyson. Even his oldest daughter picked up on his low mood during this time. There is no question he needed to get back in the ring and try to finally win a world title. A month later, Bruno got the inspiration that he needed when Mike Tyson lost his world titles in a shock defeat to Buster Douglas 28-4-1 in Tokyo, Japan. Again, check out our Legendary Nights episode from Season 1 for more details on that tale. After being knocked out in the 10th round, Tyson said in an interview, honest interview, I just wasn't right. You know what I mean? I took it for granted, took my body for granted, took my skills for granted. You have to leave the girls alone, leave late nights alone. Just concentrate on what you're doing. Bruno still had not returned to the ring following Tyson's shock defeat, but he did marry Laura in 1990 and was awarded an MBE in the Queen's Honours list for his services to boxing that same year. He told reporters that he had a good year and a nice time ducking and diving, a phrase, another phrase he always liked to use, away from the sport. But like a bad itch, he wanted to make another push for that world title. And he said, it's like being married and your wife running away from you and you love her and she won't come back. It's always in your heart. What wasn't documented so much was for, in Bruno's two-year break away from the ring, was he actually received a serious eye injury. This didn't really develop until he decided to come back. And this was after the Tyson fight. He was actually diagnosed with a detached retina again. It was, I don't know if it was exactly, I think it was a slightly different tear, but he needed surgery 
and doctors had advised him not to return to the ring. Otherwise, he would risk blindness. But Bruno was adamant. He wanted to fight on in search for world title glory. Well, interestingly, Bruno's eye issue was not a new thing. Before his professional debut, he actually had to go to Colombia to have an eye operation, which, as we now know, was successful. However, Bruno was confronted by a man during his time in South America and was asked to smuggle drugs back to England. Thankfully, Bruno didn't agree. Otherwise, he would have been on the programme banged up abroad rather than on national television as a national treasure. While in Colombia, Bruno headed up the mountains, managed to acquire some Jamaican old Holborn and stumbled across the local cartel, who thought he was an undercover policeman. Bruno was lucky to arrive back to Borstal, South London, unscathed. So back to 1990, and the older and more mature Bruno underwent medicals to prove that he was physically fit to return to boxing. Now, while Frank was waiting for that approval from the British Boxing Border Control, Mike Tyson was beginning his road back to the heavyweight table, which started against Henry Tillman on June the 16th, after failed negotiations to get the Buster Douglas rematch. Now, we did go into the background story of the negotiations and the courtroom drama in the Tyson Holyfield Legendary Nights episode. Please do go and check that out as well. Now, there was a history between these two, as Tillman had previously beaten Tyson twice in the amateurs. The former world champion was able to get himself up for the fight, which lasted just 2 minutes and 47 seconds, as Tyson destroyed his old foe to get back to winning ways. To end the year, Tyson knocked out Alex Stewart 20 seconds quicker than Tillman in Atlantic City, proving he was still as ferocious as he had been before his defeat, even with the distractions outside of the ring. Tyson was back in the ring on March 18, 1991 and installed as the rightful number one heavyweight contender in the WBC, WBA and IBF governing bodies. And he faced the number two contender in Donovan Ruddock, who was 25-1-1 at the Mirage Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. Tyson stopped Ruddock with a flurry of punches that had him staggering when referee Richard Steele decided the Canadian could take no more in that seventh round. They fought a rematch on June 28. But after hitting the deck twice and having a point deduction in the eighth, Tyson also had two points deducted in the fight. Ruddock managed to hear that final bell. He held on. The result was a wide unanimous decision for Mike Tyson, obviously. On July 19, Tyson then travelled to Indianapolis for the day to watch. It was 24 hours he was in Indianapolis. Uh, and he went to watch all the girls prepare for Miss Black America. You can actually see this video footage of Mike with all the girls there preparing as they're dancing and he's sort of groping the girls inappropriately. And However, it all seemed to be to their liking and they like the attention. In the video, you could hear the director telling Tyson to play with them a little. And uh, of course, he obliged. A prosecuting attorney, Jeff Modisette, watched the video and actually commented on his thoughts saying that Tyson was out of control and that he almost had a roving hunter look to him. He had all these women clearly enamoured with him, including Desiree Washington. He was obviously taken with her. She was a very pretty girl and Desiree was thrilled and he took advantage, advantage of that, which we're going to go into not in a hell of a lot of detail, but in enough from what, what we're going to do for this episode in a way. We don't want to make it too much about this. But afterwards, one of the girls actually complained to a report, reporter that he had touched her backside and squeezed it, which of course led to the moment he will never forget. 
Desiree Washington, an 18-year-old college student who had told the police and later testified in court that Mike Tyson had raped her in his hotel and laughed about it as she wept. She reported the incident and was examined by the emergency room physician more than 24 hours after, and they confirmed that Washington's physical condition was consistent with rape. Tyson has always pleaded his innocence, claiming that everything had taken place with Washington's full consent and that he never forced himself upon her. If you want to know exactly what transpired in that room, you can actually find out what Tyson testified by reading the transcripts of his trial, because by UK law, he couldn't comment on many aspects of his own trial. However, speaking out before his sentencing, Tyson said, I have not raped anyone try to rape anyone by any means. I'm sorry for Miss Washington as a person. I by no means meant to hurt her or do anything to her. I am sure she knows that. He then wrote in his autobiography, Undisputed Truth, I did not rape Desiree Washington. She knows it. God knows it. And the consequences of her actions are something that she's got to live with for the rest of her life. We do have plans to revisit this subject, maybe on a darker side of boxing episode in the future. The appeals lawyer, Alan Dershowitz, was brought in by Don King and went to visit Tyson the night before sentencing. And Alan said, I got a call from Don King and he said, Mike Tyson would like to meet you and consider hiring you to be his appeal lawyer. And so I flew to Indianapolis. I met Don King and he takes me up to Mike Tyson's suite. This is Mike Tyson's last night of liberty for a long time and he's with his entourage, and they're having a couple of beers. Mike says to me, Oh, you're Dershowitz, the lawyer. Well, let me ask you some questions. And Dershowitz continued with his story. He said, Do you believe I'm innocent? I said, Michael, I have to be very honest with you. From what I know about the case, you are a schmuck. He looks at me. I thought he was going to hit me. He said, Why are you calling me a schmuck? I said, Because you went up, to a hotel room alone without witnesses with a woman who you had just met and you put yourself in a position where you could be extorted and framed. You're a schmuck for doing that. He looks at me and growls, then looks at his retainers to Don King and said, that guy called me a schmuck. He's right. That was your job to stop me from going up to that room. Alan, you're hired. Mike Tyson was guilty of a crime of stupidity. And that's what Darshwitz thought. So in February 1992, following a two-week trial that monopolised the attention of the media across the world, Tyson was found guilty of rape, rape as we know. And the New York Times actually reported on March 27 that Mike Tyson, the former heavyweight champion of the world, was convicted of rape last month, was sentenced to 10 years in prison today, but the judge suspended the last four years, meaning he will spend no more than six years behind bars. Judge Patricia Gifford, who pronounced the sentence, denied the defence request that Mr Tyson remain free while his conviction is appealed. She cited the seriousness of the crime, the risk that he would flee the country and her certainty that his appeal would be denied. So there you go. That's where Tyson is. Frank Bruno was actually told by doctors in in London at this point, while Tyson's going to prison, that he should not return to the ring or he will eventually go blind in one eye. But the pull of another world title shot was too great. I think I'm not going to say they're happy that Tyson's in prison, but it 
cool it creates a hole doesn't it so frank's gonna make his way back he does return he returns under the promotional banner of frank warren's queensbury well he appeared on the terry wogan show in 1991 and he was asked you took a bit of stick from some critics didn't you at the beginning and now i noticed that they're all coming around and saying that you're really good at it frank's response was and i'm here I'm just a ducker and a diver, just trying to make a living, you know, then dropping his unforgettable laugh. The comeback began for Bruno against John Emmon on November the 20th, 1991 at the Royal Arbor Hall. There was deep public concern for his well-being due to his eye issues, but he knew the risks and he wanted to give it a go. A big right hand finished Emmon in the first round and Harry Carpenter said on commentary, it's official, Frank is back. Bruno told the media, I'm 31. And I feel the best I've ever felt in my life. I'm mature. I've got more hairs on my chest. Look at that. I feel stronger than I did when I was 28, 25. On April the 22nd, 1992, Bruno began to climb that mountain and he took on Jose Ribalta from Miami and flattened him in two rounds with that powerful right hand that, as Harry Carpenter stated, rendered him unconscious. Seven months later, and Bruno was back at Wembley Stadium against Pierre Coetzer, and the fight lasted just eight rounds until Bruno landed his trademark right and forced the South African's corner to throw in the towel. Then on the 24th of April 1993, Bruno stopped Carl Williams in 10 rounds at the National Exhibition Centre in Birmingham, which set up a domestic clash with the new WBC heavyweight champion, a certain Lennox Lewis, who was 23-0, for October the 1st, 1993. Now, we recently did do a revisit on this particular fight ahead of the Tyson Fury Dillian White fight, so please go and listen to the Bruno Lewis episode that we did. And it was a fight that sparked a lot of interest on these shores. There was a lot of bad blood between the pair, and British beef was on the menu at the National Stadium in Cardiff. Lewis questioned Bruno's credibility to his race by calling him an Uncle Tom. I think he called him a coconut as well, something that Bruno has not forgiven for him still to this day. He actually told Trish Dixon in his Life Stories episode that he respected Lewis for what he achieved in the sport of boxing, but that as a person, it just wasn't his cup of tea. Still today, just not his cup of tea. The fight was ended in the seventh round from a savage knockout by Lewis, and it proved to be one of the most memorable and violent British world title fights in history, where both men left the ring with their reputations enhanced. But it wasn't three times lucky for Frank Bruno who left empty-handed after another world title challenge. Undeterred by this, Bruno returned to the ring on March 16, 1994 and stopped Jesse Ferguson in the first round at the National Exhibition Stadium in Birmingham. Frank Warren said afterwards, this man is going to win the world title for Britain. Duke McKenzie watched the fight and said that Frank Bruno was on a mission. The flame was still burning inside of him to be a heavyweight champion of the world and it was still burning bright. And Frank Bruno echoed those sentiments. He said, every fight is a step closer because if you lose, there's no more stepping. You've just got to step backwards. So he understood what was happening. And, and while Bruno was trying to force his way into contention for a heavyweight title shot, Tyson's future was actually being decided while he's in prison. Mohammed Sadiq, a religious advisor said that Don King had cut a deal with John Horn and Rory Holloway before Tyson uh, appointed them as his managers. Now, Sadiq said that in June 1994, he actually met with King, Horn and Holloway in Indianapolis Hotel Suite 
and was offered a job as part of a group that would guide the boxer's career after his release from prison. While Tyson remained behind bars, Bruno fought twice in 1995, first in February against Rodolfo Marin, the Puerto Rican who was down and counted out in the very first round. In Glasgow on May the 13th, Bruno needed only a round longer to flatten Mike Evans, which put him in a position to fight for a world title for a fourth time. It was the last chance saloon for Bruno, who would be a string of journeymen to keep himself in the mix, except for Lennox Lewis. Bruno was identified by the WBC champion Oliver McCall, who was 26 and 5, who had actually gone on to conquer Lennox Lewis in 1994 to win the belt. As an easy payday, he thought Bruno was going to be an easy night for him. McCall decided to make his second defence in England, knowing the fans would come out in their thousands to support the heavyweight local hero after he narrowly defeated an aged Larry Holmes. The fight took place on September the 2nd, 1995 at Wembley Stadium in front of 23,000 fans and from the opening bell, Bruno took charge, snapping home his hard left jab and bullying a lethargic McCall. After 10 rounds, the London crowd were behind the stronger and busier fighter in Bruno. However, the tension increased moving into the last two rounds. The question on everyone's lips was, will he fail in the closing round as he has done before? McCall knew he was losing the fight and came alive in those last two rounds. But Bruno held and dug deep during some desperate moments as the champion threw everything and the kitchen sink at Bruno. Clinching at every opportunity, Bruno protected himself well through the fight, although he was blowing out of his arse as it came towards the end. The final three minutes, well, very painful to watch. But when that final bell sounded, the relief was visible. Everyone knew the fight was Bruno's apart from the big man himself. And he said, sometimes in boxing, you've got to wait until you've knocked him out. Then you know you got it. After 12 rounds of boxing, we have a unanimous decision. Here are the score totals. Judge at ringside, Malcolm Bolner scores at 115 to 113. Judges at ringside, Newton Campos and Rai Solis both score the bat at 117 to 111. All three in favor of the winner and new. So the biggest reason for Bruno's hesitance to believe that he had got the judge's decision was because of Mr. Slippery Dodgy Don King himself. And he said, when dealing with Don King, who was half the promoter for the show, he could have put a brown envelope in the judge's way or got the judges a nice girl the night before to soften them up and change the verdict. So you've got to be on your toes when you're dealing with Don King. And it's just funny how he keeps calling some it's slippery and stuff as well. This is exactly we we agree. Thankfully, no brand envelopes passed hands, and Bruno took a unanimous decision: 117 to 111 twice, and 115, 113. 
Stan Hay of the Independent newspaper wrote that Amid scenes verging on mass hysteria at the fourth attempt, Frank Bruno finally claimed the world heavyweight title last night when he produced an astonishing and stirring performance to outpoint the reigning WBC champion Oliver McCall. Bruno thereby became the first British heavyweight this century not only to win a world title on home soil, but also to hold one as of right. The unanimous verdict to the Englishman triggered off a torrent of patriotic enthusiasm and celebrations around the stadium as fireworks of red, white and blue bunting rained over the, down from the skies. After finally winning the world title, an emotional Bruno said, all these years I've been dreaming of this. If I won £10 million lottery today, it wouldn't mean as much as this. Well, thanking everyone, Bruno got choked up as the emotion was still clearly very raw. He went on to bite back at Lennox Lewis and Oliver McCall for the names they had called him during the build-up. I'm no Uncle Tom man. No way. I love my brother. I'm not an Uncle Tom. I love my people. I'm not a sellout. He later reflected years later, sometimes you have a journey. You get kicked down as you get near the top of the hill. Hearing the decision when I won was ecstasy. That title, you can't get that in the shops you have to earn it boxing has been good to me and i'm still stuck ducking and diving and making a crust i'm content so that's obviously after his retirement well it took frank bruno 13 years to become world champion and he'd finally done it he went through london on an open top bus and thousands came out to see their heavyweight hero it was like a football parade celebrating their league or cup win and it just demonstrated the love and admiration that this country had for him now, moving back to Tyson, one month before Bruno had finally won that world title, Tyson had actually returned to the ring following his release from prison and he won a disqualification against Peter McNeely, who was 36-1. and one. His fellow American was clearly hurt from an exchange, prompting his manager to enter the ring to prevent his fighter from taking any more damage, causing Mills Lane to end the fight and award Tyson the victory via disqualification. Now, on December the 16th, 1995, Tyson knocked out the undefeated Buster Mathis Jr., who was 20-0, in just three rounds. So now that only leaves us to go to one place. And that is the rematch between the two. For Bruno, the only thing left for him to do in his career was to do what he couldn't before, was to beat Mike Tyson. It was the last hurdle he wanted to achieve, so he took the challenge, even though the sight in his eye was beginning to diminish. The fight took place on March the 16th, 1996 at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. The referee calling the action was Mills Lane and the three judges were Jerry Roth, Anek Hong Tongaham and Larry O'Connell. Now this was Bruno's first defence of the WBC heavyweight title and yet again it was promoted by Don King Productions. The fight was televised live on pay-per-view by Showtime and generated 1.37 million buys and 58.3 million in pay-per-view revenue. The paid attendance was just over 16,000 and the gross gate was just over $10 million. Tyson entered the fight as a 5-1 to favourite and received a purse of $30 million and Bruno got a purse of $6 million. So just before we do the description of the fight and how it went down, for me, this this is quite a significant fight in a lot of ways because it was the first fight I, I genuinely recall staying up for at the age of 10, which obviously shows my age now. But at the age of 10, this was the first big fight that 
I was I was taken to watch my dad. I was staying at my dad's at the time. He took me over to his friends. You know, we stayed up all night with his friend's son. And it was like four or five o'clock in the morning when it started. And, and this was what really genuinely piqued my interest in the sport. So for me, doing this episode has a lot of nostalgia to it because of the fact that it was, for me, the first big fight that I can recall being so engaged in before I started to engage in all the other fighters that were around at the time. And what a fight it was. You know, my interpretation of Frank at the time was the guy that everybody loved. And my interpretation of Tyson at the time was an absolute monster, an animal. And everybody who was around who watched that fight in that room that night with myself, we all knew it was going to be over pretty quick. But I don't think anybody anticipated it would be as dramatic as what it was. And and I do remember it very well because obviously I you know, I remember Ty, uh, Bruno winning that title against McCall in '95, and then a lot of the hype sort of before this the second Tyson fight was more to do with the fact that we had the Euros, didn't we? The football Euros is coming home, so that was part of it. And obviously with, with the following that Bruno had, and you know he was he was loved by the country and Britain. So it was it was that whole thing. It was like the, the football's coming out, '96 is coming out, and you got Bruno Tyson. It was just two big sporting events in in my life in '96 that I just won't forget. But yeah, I'm with you. I, I, I sort of from the general consensus of everyone around me, I think everyone was like, there was no way Bruno's going to win this fight, and he's crazy. It is literally like a lamb going to the slaughter. But I think the one thing with Tyson, although he had come back and won those had a couple of victories. How good is he? Like, could he still take a punch? What was he doing in prison? I think that was the element, wasn't it? That was the unknown. Is is Bruno? And we know he's over thirty. He's wrong side of thirty, but can he land that lucky shot? But yeah, look, I, I remember it fondly, though, Sean. I'm with you. This was just a great time. This is the time where I probably started to realise that yeah, Tyson's just a different animal, <laughs> and there's no way Bruno's going to get it. We only hope for the best, but it was just inevitable how it's going to end. And this is what Bruno expected. He said he's not looking for the Tyson of Fort McGillian Mathis. Here's a combination uppercut by Tyson. Tyson laying it on, pouring it on. Down goes Bruno into the ropes. And it is all over. It is all over here in round three. Mike Tyson is champion again. And that is it. Mike Tyson is back. Tyson era has begun. Well, Richard Hoffer reported the following in the issue of Sports Illustrated. With a crushing body blow, a series of enormous right hands and an uppercut that lifted the 6'3", 247-pound Bruno off his feet, the 5'11", 220-pound Tyson needed only 50 seconds more than two rounds to fashion his third comeback victory. Yeah, and then Richard Hoffer went on to say the performance was reminiscent of the violent spectacle Tyson used to routinely provide before we became more dangerous out of the ring than in it. He was crisper than he had been in the two non-title bouts he had fought since coming out of the Indiana prison last March. He was at least as powerful as he had been in 1989 when he and Bruno met in the in defense of the Unified Championship. Well, the fight was over in three rounds. That's why we're not going to go into so much detail. And memories and and Richard Hoffer providing a little report there. But it was over very quickly. It was very one-sided. And the, the end came, as again described by Hoffer, Tyson unleashed a 13-punch sequence that started with a right hand to Bruno's body and ended with a left hook that sent Bruno crashing to the ropes. The referee, Mills Lane, interceded and stopped the fight. At the end of the day, Bruno shouldn't have fought this fight. He'd done it for personal reasons. For me, he should have went out of the game after the McCall fight. 
should never have taken on Tyson. Should just vacate that title. But he had that that itch he wanted to scratch. And well, there you go. So both Bruno and Tyson declined actually to appear at a post news conference. And Tyson said that he would meet with the media on the Sunday. And he told his handlers that to tell the press, I said, I just hit like a mule. So he wasn't interested in any talking. He'd won the title. After that second fight, Bruno actually retired from the game. Tyson went on in his career to finally get out of Vander Holyfield fights and obviously fight Lennox Lewis. At the end of the Tyson-Bruno documentary, Tyson and Bruno do meet up in America in, in Tyson's house and they discuss the fights and everything more about Robin Givens and, and Custy Amato as well. And more importantly, they did speak about their mental health issues as well, which is a big thing in that documentary at the end of it. And Tyson jo- did actually joke that Bruno went to one mental health facility where I've been to 10 of them. This is what we have to go through. This is our journey that we have to deal with. Bruno felt like a weight had been lifted off his shoulders as well after this meeting with Tyson. He said, I'm glad I met him because it took the pressure off me mentally. Yeah, great documentary. Sky Sports did that. I think it was 2020, 2021. It was a great documentary. Please do go and watch it if you've not already done so. We look at a lot of these fights in in great detail. And, you know, the reason why we've not been into too much of an aftermath for this episode is because, you know, you look at Tyson after this, Bruno retires, Tyson fights Bruce Selden in September 96. And then following that, he has the two fights with Evander Holyfield, which we've already done a legendary night on for season two. So please do go and check that out. Lennox Lewis, not one we've done yet. Definitely one we will look to do in the future for another episode. But in terms of Tyson's career following that, it is really just hit and miss, completely hit and miss. And if you want a bit more information about that, you can go on listen to some of our other literature that we've done on Mike Tyson, some of our other podcasts that we've done on Mike Tyson, please do go and check them out. Our memories really are of these two fights and this tale of of Tyson versus Bruno. A lot that led up to that first particular fight and Frank had that moment, that moment in that first fight, that moment that could have changed everything for him, but it wasn't meant to be. Instead, what was meant to happen was he was meant to go in and have that defining night in 1995 against Oliver McCall which finally got his world title. God bless him. He finally got to the top of the mountain for that moment in his career. It was so sad to hear of all the mental health issues he had outside of the ring for many, many years, but he's still a very active person. He's on social media. He goes to a lot of the big boxing events these days. He's he's very open. He talks about his mental health. He does a lot of after-dinner speaking events now. Whereas Tyson, as you know, he's got his hot boxing podcast. He's, he's a completely different man than, than what he used to be. That being said, he did punch the shit out of someone on a flight recently, as we've mentioned in one of our recent episodes, and he isn't being charged for that. But that's what happens when you, you know, you provoke a man like like that guy did to Tyson. And even though Tyson's a much more calmer, resolute guy these days, you know, he had to he had to defend himself essentially. That was that was what he did. He he felt provocated and, and that's that's Mike Tyson for you. You know, he's still got a little bit of that in him, as we know. And it's been great to do this episode on on Bruno and Tyson. I've really enjoyed going back and reminiscing about all the events that took place in the lead up to it. And I hope that you guys have enjoyed the story. Have you got any final thoughts on the tale of Tyson Bruno just I mean I think the one thing with Tyson when we looked at putting these episodes together I mean we looked at Tyson Bruno we sort of I'm in law when we Sean because we was thinking you know the actual the best fight's the first one but even then is it like normally we do a legendary night it's not just a one-sided beatdown I mean it's not always like that but 
it, it was it had its moment and that was obviously that first round and second and third and then it just sh- shifted into Tyson's favour but so some people may look if he has that legendary night but you've got to remember this is a towel we love a towel we love to go into the ins and outs the build up to everything and 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 a bit of the and the aftermath and there's so much to it I mean the amount of stuff that happens with Mike Tyson the one thing I will say is that clearly I think a dark side of boxing is there there was so much more information that we could have pointed out with a lot of the issues he had with other women in the lead up to this Bruno fight alone, there was loads. Like seriously, we, it would have turned into almost like an episode of Dark Side of Box. So I think that's something we could probably look at, Sean, is doing one for Tyson. But going back to Bruno, I mean, they both had obviously mental health issues. Bruno really has, you know, bonkers Bruno in the paper. I didn't like that. I mean, he, I was a huge Bruno fan, still am. The guy is, you know, ducking and diving, as he always says. You know, I, I, he's he's loved. And do you know what's crazy about Frank Bruno? Is he, he understands it, but he don't like it. He is so doesn't like the fame. He can't stand it. And that's half the reason why his decline happened mentally. And obviously, he did say that George Francis, who was the man, his trainer, his good friend, who actually had some trauma in his life in sort of the start of the millennium and ended up apparently committing suicide. And that really hurt Frank and just other people dying around him. And I think the COVID as well, I think Frank had a bit of a dark turn on that. So I just hope he's well. And he's, you know, because I love listening to him. I love watching his fights. Yeah, he's not the greatest fighter of all time, but I was just so chuffed, Sean. As you say, that 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 night against McCall will be a day I'll always remember because just just so happy for him. And it makes me emotional when I look back on that fight and just seeing him at the end of it, just the relief of finally winning that title. So you've got two completely contrasting figures here. A guy that was, what, undisputed every weight, by the time he's 20 and then you got another guy that ever only ever won it once but it was a beautiful moment it was a beautiful moment and it's been a great episode a great nostalgic reminiscent episode for ourselves and we hope you guys have enjoyed listening to it of course if you have please let us know drop us a note on social media at legend night pod or if it's on the btr boxing pod twitter feed comment on that as well or you can find us on facebook instagram and you can find us on the youtube channel if you've watched slash listened to this on the youtube channel make sure you drop a comment below let us know what your thoughts are your memories your nostalgia for this particular tale these two fights also if you are a patron of this podcast you will have had access to this early so i hope you've enjoyed early access and ad free access to this episode thank you so much to the patrons as always for supporting us and if you're not yet a patron please go and check us out at patreon.com forward slash btr boxing podcast to find all our available membership service which include things like early access to episodes ad free episodes patron only content that you can even commission episodes through there there's plenty of stuff on there for that little bit of financial support that you guys provide to us it's truly truly appreciated and it allows us to create more series based content like the legendary nights the darker side of boxing and career profiles well that's it thank you for listening i hope you've enjoyed this tale the tale of mike tyson and frank bruno
Social Podcast Network.